Newsflash. We are not saved by our works. Now, that, that's not really a newsflash, is it? Now, we know that. As a matter of fact, if you've been a, any a part in and out of this series on Romans, we have heard that message over and over and over. Every message kind of comes to that point. Now, we've, we've looked at it from different angles. We've, we've studied different issues. We've seen that, you know, we can't be, uh, no matter how good we might be or how moral we might try to be or how, how much effort we try to give, none of that covers over or erases the sin that's in our lives. I mean, that's not to say you're not really good. You're really moral. But just the fact that that's true of you doesn't then mean that all the sin's covered over. Uh, that the, the depravity, remember that word we've learned, is, is now gone. We saw last time in Romans 3.23 that no matter how good we are, we still fall short of the target. I mean, you might be a really, really good person. But that's not the target. The, the target is not a really good person. The target, according to 323, is God's perfect glory. So we've heard this different variations, looking at different issues, answering different questions, but we keep coming back to this central message, we're not saved by our works. So we've seen now for three chapters in Romans. And so we open up today, Romans chapter 4, and right away in verse 1, in verse 2, Paul says, we are not saved by our works. And I'm thinking, really, Paul? This is getting a little bit repetitive. <laughs> I'm thinking, Lord, you know, and we've heard this message already. Really, are we going to start this all over? Uh, I mean, is this where we're going again? Yes, different questions. Yes, different issues. But it all kind of keeps coming down to the same exact message. And so, I mean, folks, honestly, I'm, I'm studying Romans 4 and I'm thinking, gosh, Lord, this is really repetitive. We, we, we got it. And then I think maybe God said, no, you don't. <laughs> We, we really don't have this very central truth. Now, I'm not talking about inside of Christianity, but, but just to show you how humanity thinks and works, are you aware that 100% of all the religions on the earth, they all teach work salvation? Your effort to get to God. Now, we're talking about a lot of different religions. They might have a different understanding of what God is. They might have a different understanding of how you get to Him. They might have an inter a different understanding of what rewards or what heaven is. But whatever their understanding, it's going to be your effort. It's going to be your abilities that are going to cover that distance and get you to where you want to be with God. Now, those are what we would call false religions. And so we would expect false teaching to come from that, but there it is. That's the way the human mind thinks. 100% of cults. I mean, folks, anytime you start seeing 100% of something, you're starting to see the way human mind thinks. 100% of religions, 100% of cults all teach a works salvation. Folks, humanity doesn't get this. Humanity misses this. But I want to tell you what surprises me is how many denominations and churches under the Christian banner are not getting this. Some of them, I don't think many, but there are a few that you can actually go to their black and white written down doctrine and you'll see a work salvation. Now, you won't find that a lot under the banner of Christianity, but you'll find it. But I think even more what you find is the way, the way Christianity is being expressed, the way it's being taught 
I think the average person leaves practically thinking this is something I've got to do. This is something I've got to work out. And so we don't get it. We, we miss it as humans, and I think we can even miss it inside the church. And so maybe, maybe that's why God's so repetitive. Maybe I've got great confidence that I got it, and I've got great confidence that you got it, but I'm thinking God wants to make sure we get it again. So that's what we're going to do this morning. Open with me to Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. We're going to look at 15 verses today. We're taking off a, a hunk of the pie here. Romans 4, 1 to 15. If you don't have a Bible with you, we've got some in the, the chairs in front of you. I hope you'll grab one and study along. While you're turning there, I want to point your attention to a couple of other verses. You can see them up here on the screen. And, and what I'm doing with a couple of other verses, folks, is just trying to show the clarity of this message throughout Scripture. That This is not just a message in Romans. Now, if it was just a message in Romans, that's enough, isn't it? I mean, all of God's Word is God's Word. Romans is God's Word. If God says it one time, that's good enough. He doesn't have to repeat Himself. But I am trying to show that the message in Romans is not exclusive to Romans. We see it in the New Testament. We see it in the Old. Some of these verses you're probably familiar with. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace. Grace means unmerited favor. It's a free gift. It's not initiated by you, it's initiated by the one giving it. For by grace you are saved through faith. Faith does not save you. Faith is the conduit by which God's grace comes into your life and saves you. For by grace you are saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, the faith you show. That's not from you, that's a gift of God. Not from works. Look at those three words, folks. Not from works. Don't you love it when people say, well, you know, uh, there's a lot of different ways to interpret the Bible. There's a lot of different ways people explain it. Really? I mean, how many ways can you interpret not from works? I, I mean, really, does it take a preacher for this? I, 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 how do you, how, how many ways? Not from, what's the, what are we talking about? Salvation. How a person is saved. Not from works. And yet we're very confused about this. It's not from works so that no one can boast. Titus 3, 5. He saved us. I didn't save me. My effort, my work, my goodness, my, my intent, my attempts did not save me. He saved us not by works. Is that just me or does that seem pretty simple? I mean, it's pretty straightforward. Not by works of righteousness that we had done, but according to his mercy. I like the way David approaches this in Psalm 49. He says, yet these. Now these, in the specific context of Psalm 49, is riches. This is the person trying to buy their way into heaven or, as you can read the verse, buy their way out of hell. And, and so he says, these riches. Now a broader context is, you could say, my assets. God, here's the assets I bring to the table to show why I should go to heaven. I mean, here's the money I'll give you, how much you want of that, and here's some good works that I did, and, and here's the things I tried to be, and, and here's some things over here that I did. God, this is all of the assets of Randy Hahn. Yet these cannot redeem a person or pay his ransom to God, since the price of redeeming him is too costly. One, listen, look at this verse. One should forever stop trying so that he may live forever and not see the pit. Boy, that's a discouraging message, isn't it? Hey, why do we come to church? I'm trying to be a good person. 
I'm trying to be a good person today. I'm going to go to church and I'm going to look maybe for some things I can volunteer. I want to be a good person. David says, hey, if you're trying to be a good enough person to get out of hell and into heaven, just quit. Do you ever think that message is in the Bible? Just stop. Forget it. It ain't going to happen. You're not going to get there. Next two words, I think, are the most precious words in all the Bible. But God. By the way, Ephesians 2.8, that ends the section that begins in Ephesians 2.4. Ephesians 2.1-3 are talking about how dead you and I are in sin. And then Ephesians 2.4 says, but God. Just like David says here, but God. There's my failure, but God. There's my inability, but God. There's my inadequacy, but God will redeem my life from the power of Sheol. That's the power of hell power of the dead. God will redeem my life. Folks, the Bible is very clear. It's very consistent on this message. And yet it is my belief that you could walk into the average church in the United States of America today, today, October 16th, 2011, pick a church, walk into it, walk in and sit down next to somebody before the announcements start and say, hey, do you know how to get to heaven? And folks, I can almost promise you more than half the time you're going to hear them say something about our efforts. Oh, you need to, you need to try to obey the Ten Commandments. Oh, you know, you've got to follow the, the golden rule. You know, do unto others as you want them to do to you. You, know, you, need to, you need to give to the poor. You know, folks, about anything that you hear is important. Pretty important to obey the Ten Commandments. It's pretty important to follow the golden rule and and help the poor. Those are all things that will help you enjoy and live inside a relationship with God. But none of those things will purchase that relationship for you. None of those things will bring you into that relationship. We don't get this. This is not the way that we think. So God says, as we open a fourth chapter of Romans, we're going to get it again. Let's see how David approaches, or excuse me, Paul approaches the topic this time. Romans chapter 4, verse 1. I'm reading out of the New Living Translation today. Uh, It might sound a little bit different if you're following closely in your translation. You'll see it's saying the same thing. Uh, It's a long passage, and I like that. Uh, I like the New Living for its readability. It just reads real smooth. So follow along with me there in your translation. Romans 4, verse 1. Abraham was, humanly speaking the founder of our Jewish nation. What were his experiences concerning this question of being saved by faith? Was it because of his good deeds that God accepted him? If so, he would have had something to boast about. But from God's point of view, Abraham had no basis at all for pride. For the scriptures tell us, Abraham believed God. So God declared him to be righteous. When people work, their wages are not a gift. Workers earn what they receive, but people are declared righteous because of their faith, not because of their work. King David spoke of this, describing the happiness of an undeserving sinner who is declared to be righteous. Oh, what joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven, whose sins are put out of sight. Yes, what joy for those whose sin is no longer counted against them by the Lord. Now then... Is this blessing only for the Jews or is it for Gentiles too? Well, what about Abraham? We've been saying he was declared righteous by God because of his faith. 
But how did his faith help him? Was he declared righteous only after he'd been circumcised? Or was it before he was circumcised? The answer is that God accepted him first and then he was circumcised later. The circumcision ceremony was a sign that Abraham already had faith and that God had already accepted him and declared him to be righteous even before he was circumcised. So Abraham is the spiritual father of those who have faith but have not been circumcised. They are made right with God by faith. And Abraham is also the spiritual father of those who have been circumcised but only if they have the same kind of faith Abraham had before he was circumcised. It's clear then that God's promise to give the whole earth to Abraham and his descendants was not based on obedience to God's law, but on the new relationship with God that comes by faith. So if you claim that God's promise is for those who obey God's law and think they are good enough in God's sight, then you are saying that faith is useless. And in that case, the promise is also meaningless. But the law brings punishment on those who try to obey it. The only way to avoid breaking the law is to have no law to break. So Paul says the same thing he's been saying over and over in these first three chapters. We are not saved by our works, but we're saved by faith. And now what Paul does in, this, in these verses I just read is he, he reaches back to the past. Now, if you'll remember months and months ago when we started this study in Romans, we talked about the audience. And the audience is both Jewish and Gentile. He's writing the city of Rome, which is, is filled with both kinds of people, Jews and non-Jews. But it appears in, in Romans 4, he's really honing in on his Jewish audience. And, and he's wanting them to see, hey guys, what I'm talking to you about, this is not new. This is not a new direction God is going. This, I'm not trying to get you to follow me to some new belief. This is the way God has always done it. And to, to illustrate that, he reaches back there to the past to things that every Jew would have understood. Every Jew would know and be able to go, you know what, that's right. You know what, I knew that. Yeah, yeah that is, that's always been the truth. That's right. He's reaching back to those things, every one of them would have understood. And he reaches back to three things, Abraham, David, and then circumcision. Now let's see what he does with each of these. He goes to Abraham, refers to him, of course, as the, as the forefather. Now we know what founding fathers are, right? We've got some of those here. We, we've got Jefferson and, and uh, Washington and Adams and, and others. These founding fathers, they kind of defined what America was. They kind of set the pace and the direction of, of, of what America would be like. And, and even today, some 240 years later, we still, with questions we have today, we look back to them and say, do you have answers for this? Is there something in your life, in your writing, that guides and gives answers to things we're doing today? That's kind of what a founding father, a forefather is. Well, what Adam and Jefferson and Washington are to us, in, in a governmental sense, in a spiritual sense, that's what Abraham was to the Jews. They would look back to him. They'd say, what did Abraham think? What, what, what did Abraham do? They didn't worship him like a god, but they knew, hey, this guy kind of defined Judaism. This guy kind of set the pace. And so with that understanding, Paul then asked the question, okay, now we all going to look to Abraham. We, we recognize he started this thing off. He, he kind of sets the pace. So was he made right with God by his works, by his efforts, by religious rituals or religious rites that he kept? Or was it by something else? 
And to answer that question, he goes to a passage that, that Jews would have known because it, it was the beginning of Judaism. He quotes Genesis fifteen sixteen, and he says, Abraham believed and it was credited to him for righteousness. Abraham believed. Man, God came to him and said, Abraham, here's what I want you to do. I want you to leave what you know. I want you to leave what you are. I want you to leave what you understand. And I want you to come over here and I'm going to make you something new. And everything you have is going to come from me. And your life is going to be mine. And Abraham believed him. I mean, he got the U-Haul. He packed everything up and he left. He actually did it. He believed God. And then God came to him on another occasion and said, now listen, I know you and Sarah, you know, you don't have children, you're, you're, you're past those years, you know, that's already happened, that, that's not going to be for you guys. Let me tell you something, you're going to have a child. As a matter of fact, Abraham, not only are you going to have a son, but from you will come nations, not a nation, nations. And Abraham believed I mean, against all evidence, against all feelings, he took God at his word. Doesn't say, follow what he believed in. He didn't believe in himself. It doesn't say he believed in the promise. He doesn't say he believed his confidence, his hope was in the opportunity. He believed in God. God was the center of what he believed, what he hoped, what he had confidence in. And he so believed God that he packed up and moved. He so believed God that he obeyed. Obedience is very important because obedience is what comes out of a true and genuine belief. But what started this relationship? It was belief. And Genesis 15, 16 says that, that in that belief, God credited him with righteousness. That word for credited, as you can probably see and guess, is an accounting term. And, and so God sees that belief and from that belief credits his account with righteousness. That means right standing. That means he's good. Now, if you know, you think about it, that's hard to understand in America because we can be credited with something and not be in the good. You know what I'm talking about? You know, we get that bill at the end of the month and it says we owe a thousand dollars and very quickly our eyes start looking on the page for the minimum due. Okay, and so I don't send in the $1,000. No, I send over here this minimum due. I send in the 100 Now, when that $100 gets there, they're going to what? They're going to credit your account. But you're not righteous with that bank. You're not in right standing with that bank. You may have sent a payment in, but the payment's not enough. You still are in debt. You still owe. You're not in right standing well, this word here that, that God is using for Abraham is a paid in full kind of word. You, your, your account has been credited and you now are in good and right standing. You owe nothing. You don't have to come back with a principal payment. You don't have to come back with a, uh, an interest payment. You don't have to come with a stamp. God said, I got the whole thing covered. I got the whole thing covered. And it was his belief, not his works, his belief. Now, verses 4 and 5. Put a bracket around that or a square, especially if it's your Bible. If it's not your Bible, be careful. Maybe a light pencil or something. Verses 4 and 5 are really critical, not only to this chapter, not only to Romans. I think they're critical to the New Testament. What is being said in 4 and 5 is said in other places. It was actually said in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. But I think the way it is expressed here is, it, for me for me, is about the clearest and most direct way we can understand it. 
In verses 4 and 5, he says, now listen, if you go out and work and somebody hands you a paycheck, that's not a gift, is it? I mean, you're, you're glad to get a paycheck, especially in today's world and economy. I'll take the paycheck, but that's not a gift. You don't send a thank you letter for that. That's, a, that's, not, that's, a, that's not a gift. You owed that. You, you're owed that. You earned that. And, and, and so verses 4 and 5 saying, now, what you might think of as a paycheck, don't think of that with righteousness and belief. Belief is not a work you did whereby then God needs to write a check to you for righteousness, for good standing in the account. Belief is not something that means God now owes me. Notice when they believe and are credited with righteousness in verse 5, who's the they that believe? The ungodly. See, belief didn't take care of my sin. Belief did not take care of my ungodliness. My belief in and of itself did not correct the problem. God worked through my belief. Do you see the difference? Belief became the opportunity where God moved into my life with His grace, with His mercy, with the work of Christ for me on the cross and took care of my debt and account. But my belief is not a work I did. That's the key point there, I think, for us to get. My belief is not a work that then puts God in a place of owing me, having to write a check to me for righteousness. Second person we see in this passage is David. Now, we all know David. Every Jew knows David. And, and, and they know, boy, when you think of David, you, know, you think of Goliath and you think of what a great king he was. But David is also pretty closely attached with another name. You remember it? Starts with a B. Bathsheba. Huge sin adultery, murder. David says, man, I'll tell you something. It's such a blessing to be forgiven. Why was David forgiven? What, was it because he had performed the right sacrifices for that kind of sin? The right amount? I mean, he didn't just do the right sacrifice. Well, he did it 10 times. What, was it because he had effectively and adequately gone into that mess he had made and, and got it cleaned up and, and issued apologies to the appropriate people and then an apology to God? What, what did David do that allowed him to say, man, you don't know the joy and the blessing it is to be forgiven? The answer is nothing. It's a blessing. It's a gift. The forgiveness he experienced and enjoyed is a gift from God. What a gift to be forgiven of adultery, to be forgiven of murder, to be forgiven of failing a God that had never, ever, ever failed you. God says, David says, that wasn't a work I did. This is not what led up to that. It was a blessing. It was a gift from God. Then the third thing Abraham takes on is, or that, that Paul takes on, I'm using too many biblical names, they're all running together. Uh, the third one he takes on is circumcision. Now, folks, for Jews, circumcision was Jewishness. It, it, it was Judaism. Uh, probably the way they would have been thinking would have been something like this. I'm Jewish. I'm God's because I'm circumcised. You see, their circumcision was what resulted in everything they had with God and everything they were as a Jewish person. In other words, their confidence was not in God. Their faith was not in God. Their faith was in circumcision. So Paul says, okay, okay, listen, I know, I know, what, I know what that means to you. I know your way of thinking about that. So let's back up and let's just kind of chronologically think through this. Let's go back to Abraham. We've already been there once. When was he circumcised? 
Was it right before God then came and said, here's the relationship and the promises, or was it after? Now, see, the Jew knows this is entrapment. <laughs> the, the Jew knows that, 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 that Paul's backing them into a corner. They know the story. They know God came to, to Abraham in, in Genesis chapter 12 and said, man, I'm going to make a nation out of you. I'm going to make you great. And, and, and he brought all the promises. He brought the relationship. He came back in 15 and renewed it. He came back in 17 and renewed it three times. Three times God appears to Abraham, gives the relationship, renews the relationship, renews the relationship, gives the promises, renews the promises, renews the promises. Twelve years later, that's when God says, let's put a sign on this. Let's put a stamp on this to, 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 to symbolize what we have. Twelve years after this relationship started is when circumcision came. When God gave that sign. Now folks, at this, Dave, the, the, the Jews think about Abraham. They think about David. They think about the chronological order of circumcision. They should be going, that's right. That's right. That's right. I, I knew that. I knew all these verses. I knew, I knew every bit of this. Th this is absolutely the way it's always been. But that's not what they had done. They were putting all of their confidence, all of their faith in that act of being circumcised. And that's not a Jewish problem. That's a human problem. We all do it. We do it inside of Christianity and Judaism. We do it in other religions. There's something about us where we gravitate toward this outward symbol. I just go and do that and then I'm okay. I just go and slap on this sign and then I'm good. I think part of the reason we like that is because nothing has to change on the inside. I just got to slap this outward appearance on and, and, and then I'm good to go. You know, in our culture, we do it with baptism. Now, folks, God, Jesus, commands you to be baptized. You and I are to be baptized. But baptism is not my relationship with God. You understand that? I'm to be baptized. I, if I'm going to be obedient to God, I'm going to do that. But baptism is not my relationship with God. Baptism is a sign that I have that relationship with God. We can do the same thing with the Lord's Supper. Think about it. We feel better after we leave the Lord's Supper, don't we? I have been closer to God. I've gotten some things cleaned up. Folks, the Lord's Supper is not given to us to make you righteous before God. It's given to us to celebrate the righteousness God has given us. But you think about it, we do. We, we enter church, we do it in our parking lot, we do it in parking lots all over America this morning. I'm walking in there and I don't feel so holy and I don't feel so good and then I go inside and I partake of some religious rituals and I walk out and I, I feel a little bit more godly. Now nothing's changed about my life, but I feel more godly because I'm putting my confidence in these outward acts that are just supposed to be signs. Paul says there, he says, you know, circumcision's like that notary seal. Is that word for seal? That's like a notary seal. Y'all ever had something notarized? You know, when you go get that notary seal, when that, when that seal goes on there and that signature, that means this is authentic. This is legitimate. This is the, the real deal. It has authority behind it. But folks, it's not the seal that makes it that. It's the person behind the seal. It's the signature that goes with the seal. And Paul's saying, hey, listen, it's not circumcision that makes you legitimate. It's the God who gave you circumcision. Hey, you and me today, it's not baptism that makes you a legitimate child of God. It's God who gave you baptism that makes you a legitimate child of God and puts a seal on you to say, this one's mine. This is authentic. This is real. 
But our confidence is not in the sign. It's in the God who did that. Folks, it's so, so important that we get this. So important that we get this. If we don't, we could miss heaven. There's only one way to heaven. You you don't get to pick the thing you're putting your confidence in. You don't get to pick the thing you put your hope in. There's one way to heaven. If we don't understand this, if we don't get it right, we could miss heaven. And that's not the bad news. Heaven's not the biggest thing, folks. God is the biggest thing. If we don't get this, we can miss God. Let let me explain why this is so devastating. There is... um, I was listening the other day uh, to a commercial, and I wasn't really listening to it. It was about halfway through the commercial before I got it. I said, hey, this, this sounds like what I'm studying. Uh, it, it was on uh, 1140. I've only heard this commercial one time. I think it was a commercial for a Lexus. And, and so the commercial starts by saying, you, you planted trees in the community, and you've coached Little League, and you're, you're a good this, and you're a good that. I mean, it's, it's building up what a good and wonderful person you are. And then the commercial asks the question, who's going to reward you? And very quickly, the commercial says, you are. You're going to have to reward yourself. And of course, guess what? Lexus knows how you can reward yourself. <laughs> you can buy one of their products to reward yourself. Now, folks, commercials generally are hitting at a universal human need that makes me say, I want that product. I mean, they they spend a lot of money on these commercials, so when they put it out there, they want everybody to feel it. They want everybody to get it. And so I'm thinking about this commercial, and I'm starting to think, you know, there's a lot of commercials that sell their product by telling you what you deserve. You've worked, so you deserve. McDonald's told us a long time ago, you deserve a break today, so get up and get away. To McDonald's. Now, how pray tell that would be a reward. But anyway, uh, so, you know, you've done work. Calgon, take me away. I've worked hard today. I've done everything I'm supposed to do today. Now I need a reward. All these things, lots of products are playing on this. They're playing on the commonly held belief, I've done something good, so I am owed good. Now, folks, That train of thinking is constantly going through our minds. It's going through our minds when people like you and me, man, I'm a a believer. I believe in the grace of God. I believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins. My faith, my confidence and hope is in that. I'm not trusting in Randy Hahn. I know I'm a sinner. I know I'm depraved. My confidence is in none of me. And I believe many of you in here, what you would affirm that you would say the very same things about yourself. That's my faith. That's my confidence. That's my hope. And and I'm not questioning that, not challenging that. What I am saying is with that confidence you have, there is a train of thinking in all of us that says, if I've done something good, then I am owed something good. And we carry that train of thinking into all of our relationships, your most loving relationships. How many times have you said to your mate, well, I did this, what? So you should. We're constantly making this give and take. I've done good, so I'm owed good. And folks, we can very easily carry that into our relationship with God. We do it. I'm confident every one of us has done it. We do it in prayer. You know, God, I'm, I really need help here. I need guidance here. I need healing here. I need provision here. And you know, after all, I did go to church and I did pray. And I threw some money in that stupid plate. And, you know, and what are we doing? We're building a case. God, here's the good things I've tried to be. Here's the good things I've tried to do. Therefore, 
you owe me. You owe me. There's three reasons that thought, that way of thinking is so devastating and hurtful. Number one, number one, when we do that, have you noticed back to Psalm 49, when we're bringing all of our assets to the table, God, here's, here's my money, here's my goodness, here, here's all the things I'm trying to be into. When we bring all of our assets and we start bargaining with God, you know one thing we always leave out of the equation? Our sin and depravity. We don't ever bring that in, do we? You know, when I'm talking about what God owes me and what I've tried to be and what I've tried to do, I'm not including, I'm not adding the fact of my sin, which has been right there in step with all the good things I've been trying to be and do. So we don't bring this. So that's not truth. It's not truth when I'm bringing to God this equation of my assets. There's a second problem. When we go to God and we have that very natural thought, God, couldn't you do something here? I've tried to be this. I've tried to do this. Do you realize in that moment right there, we are declaring ourselves to be in right standing and we're declaring God to be in debt. We're literally saying, God, I'm righteous and you're not. God, my, my, uh, my credit account is full. I look over at your account, God. It's in the debt because you need to help me with this. You need to do this. You haven't done this yet. And I've piled up all these good things. Man, really, that, that train of thought's running. Have you ever thought about yourself declaring yourself before God to be righteous and Him unrighteous? But here's the third and the most devastating effect of this way of thinking is we completely miss how much God loves us. Because what we're very subtly doing is we're turning our relationship with God into a business transaction. You know, God, I ended up this, I did this, I brought this to the table, so God, now it's your turn to bring this to the table. It's your turn to, to do this. And, and, and if we do get saved, if we do, you know, have an answer to a certain prayer or he shows up at that meeting or he takes care of that, per whatever it is, we say, thank you, God, you finally did that. We don't see that as his love and kindness. We see that as, well, sure. You know, I, I'd done my part, so now it was turn, his turn to do his part. And we missed that in that business. We missed that, no, folks, this was about love. Do you understand? And, and if you've been, folks, Paul's extremely logical in his thinking. So if you've been with me here through Romans 1 through 3 and building this case to where he's going now in, in chapter 4, you understand the, 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 the evidence behind this statement, the power behind this statement. God owes you nothing. You're not righteous, He is. You're not filled up with assets, He is. He absolutely owes you nothing. Which is why it's so incredible that He offers you everything. Not initiated by your goodness or your attempts or that you did this religious practice or that religious practice. Initiated by His love. That's the most simplest truth in all the Bible. God loves you. And it's one I think sometimes we barely can hang on to. Why, why don't we get that one simple truth? It's because for a lot of us, we're actually not in a love relationship. We're in a business transaction. I'm bringing my part. God, you bring your part. And we're constantly balancing out. You know, am I owing or is he owing? Have I done enough? Now does he owe? We've turned God into a business transaction. And we miss the one person in human history 
the one person in this universe today who genuinely and unconditionally loves you. Do you realize you don't have another relationship on this planet that isn't based on this deservedness model? Folks, all my heart, I'd like to believe I am growing in unconditional love for my wife and she the same for me. Human nature is human nature, isn't it? Why do we fight? Because I've done my part and she hasn't. Why is she angry today? Because she's done my part, she's done her part, and I have it. You know what I'm talking about? We're constantly weighing. Uh, uh, I'm ahead. It's 51 to 49. So we're not moving until you catch up, until you owe. Folks, those are our best relationships. And guess what? Every other relationship is just like it. Constantly weighed by who owes who and who's done good the last. God loves you without you ever having done a good thing. God loves you when you've got actually nothing that's going to enrich Him. Nothing that's going to help Him. He just loves you. So I can only imagine it breaks His heart when we turn and play this game with Him. When we turn His love into, well, yeah, you should, uh, yeah I, I went to church and I, I've said my prayers and I, I gave this and I did that. We need to get this right, don't we? And we need to understand there is something working in us that makes us miss this. And perhaps that's why the Bible says the same thing over and over and over and over and over. So why, pray tell, can you go into churches and open up their doctrine and find a work salvation? Oh God, help us not miss your love. Let's pray. Father, I, I, I guess I pray what I just said. Help us to not miss your love, Lord. There's something in us that uh, we think we're better than we are. There's something in us, God, where we want to put our faith in, in some simple outward act that doesn't really require any change. I just go and do this act and then I'm okay. Lord, I don't know if it's pride and arrogance. Lord, why why do we not want just your love? Just to enjoy your love and your forgiveness because of just how good you are. God, I I believe doctrinally speaking that that a great, great many of us in here are going to say we believe we're saved by grace. And, And we probably don't have a lot of really direct outward thoughts. God, you owe me because I've done this and this and this. But Lord, we should recognize that train of thinking is in our lives. I pray you'd give us wisdom and discernment this week to look into our heart and our mind and and see how it is we're approaching you and why we expect you to answer prayer. And God, let us see if we're bargaining with you. Show us that. I don't I don't want to do that, God. I don't I don't want to present to you my assets like you owe me something. I want to enjoy your love. I want to respect that love and not play these little games with you. Guide me, guide all of us to see where that that little train of thinking might be happening in our lives. Lord, if there's any in here this morning 
who have never come to faith in Christ. Their, their faith is in what they're trying to be religiously, morally, or otherwise. God, I pray that today would be the day that they would do what David just said in the Bible. Stop trying. Just stop. You're not, you're not going to get there. Come to Jesus. Lord, if there's anybody in this room right now that needs to come to Jesus so they can have that relationship with you. They just need to take that step of belief like Abraham. Would you tell them right now? God, tap them on the shoulder, whisper in their ear, it's you, you. I'm calling you. I want you to know my love. Lord, I pray they take a step of faith. Just like Abraham got up and moved to that other land, would they get up, come forward and tell one of these pastors, I want to know Christ. Lord, if there's somebody in here who needs to become a part of this church family, for them to continue growing and developing in that love relationship with you, you God, you want them to be here and a part of this church. If they need to be a member here, God, would you tell them? Let it be your decision, not theirs. I pray they'd stand up and come forward and tell one of these pastors, I want to be a member here. God, you move, you speak. Let your will be done in this moment. We pray it in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.